Free Thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. Post Woke hasn't yet reached the point where I get enough listener slash reader feedback to know who's reading what and who's listening to what. So as you probably have noticed, I will occasionally turn podcasts into articles and articles into podcasts. And that's what's going to happen today. Um, This is a solo podcast in which I'm combining two recent articles of mine that have a similar theme. The essence of what I'm going to talk about is the role of the medical industrial complex in creating the COVID PSYOP and the day-to-day normal role of the medical industrial complex in threatening all of our lives. So I'm going to begin with a section called a pandemic of testing, hospital kickbacks, and medical malpractice. The purpose of this is to sort of ram home the point that the numbers, the cases, the deaths, and so on related to the so-called pandemic are completely fabricated and have a very logical explanation of how this came to be. And it began when they made you fear the air itself. They told you only they know the way out of this mess. And most of you, or at least a whole lot of you, trusted them, depended on them, and came to rely on them. And when someone showed you the verifiable evidence that our so-called leaders are psychopaths, you rejected it. You couldn't handle the truth. Life is so much easier if you just blindly trust the experts and doctors and political officials, right? But what if I told you that everything you know about the pandemic is wrong? Now, I've told you about masks, social distancing, the jabs, and I have explained ad nauseum about the uselessness of the PCR test. It was incapable of diagnosing SARS-CoV-2. An entire so-called pandemic was based on these flawed results. The millions and millions of false positives was the foundation upon which the fear matrix was constructed. But are you aware of the fact that these health professionals were offered incentives to impose as many PCR tests as possible? Two decisions by the powers that shouldn't be set the stage. On March 27, 2020, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, better known as the CARES Act, was signed into law. This offered bonus incentive payments to U.S. hospitals for COVID-related activities such as PCR test, COVID-19 diagnosing, admission to the hospital for COVID-19, the use of remdesivir, more about that soon, the use of ventilators, more about that soon, reporting COVID-19 deaths, and eventually this included the COVID jabs too. The second decision around the same time period was the use of waivers of customary and long-standing patients' rights by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, aka CMS. Here's the law they used to pull off this heist. In certain circumstances, the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services uses a section of the Social Security Act to temporarily modify or waive certain Medicare, Medicaid, 
CHIP or HIPAA requirements called the 1135 waivers. This modification has been said to allow for sweeping actions that override individual physician medical decision-making and patients' rights. The combination of the override and the CARES Act provided incentives for hospitals, including doctors and nurses, to make a COVID-19 diagnosis and follow the federally mandated COVID-19 protocol. Hospitals will be forced to pay back funding if they did not follow this plan to the letter. As a result, hospitals from coast to coast receive payments for the following. A free required PCR test in the emergency room or upon admission for every single patient with government paid fee to the hospital an added bonus payment for each positive COVID-19 diagnosis, another bonus for a COVID-19 admission to the hospital, a 20% boost bonus payment from Medicare on the entire hospital bill for use of remdesivir instead of medicines such as ivermectin, another and larger bonus payment to the hospital if a COVID-19 patient is mechanically ventilated. More money to the hospital if the cause of death is listed as COVID-19, even if the patient did not die directly of COVID-19. And a COVID diagnosis also provided extra payments to coroners. Now, since the vaccination status of workers at every healthcare facility was tracked, and also provided monetary bonuses, it's not hard to see why so, such facilities implemented COVID-19 vaccine mandates. This explains why patients who sought care were immediately tested. When they almost inevitably garnered a false positive, they would be segregated and their loved ones were barred from seeing them. You've probably noticed that I mentioned remdesivir a couple of times already. This is a failed Ebola drug, but Tony Fauci and company chose to use it to serve their avaricious goals. In his best-selling book, The Real Anthony Fauci, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. writes, remdesivir has no clinical efficacy against COVID, according to every legitimate study. Worse, it is deadly poisonous, an expensive poison at $3,000 per treatment. Six months into the Ebola study, the trial safety review board suddenly pulled both remdesivir and ZMAP from the trial. Remdesivir, it turned out, was hideously dangerous. Within 28 days, subjects taking remdesivir had lethal side effects, including multiple organ failure, acute kidney failure, septic shock, and hypotension, and 54% of the remdesivir group died, the highest mortality rate among the four experimental drugs. Doctors began seeing acute kidney failure on day three, four, and five after admission. Hospitals short on ventilators also ran out of dialysis machines. Remdesivir proved to be so fatal for alleged COVID patients that nurses nicknamed it Run Death is Near. For the record, the vast majority of those nurses and doctors and other hospital employees continued the protocol rather than face the wrath of hospital administration. 
kind of makes you wish you weren't banging pots and pans for these so-called heroes, huh? The toxicity of remdesivir almost always led to the implementation of a ventilator. This served to increase hospital payments and increase the numbers of those who allegedly died of COVID. According to the National Library of Medicine, January, their January 2021 report of 69 studies involving more than 57,000 patients, fatality rates were 45% in COVID-19 patients receiving invasive mechanical ventilation. That number was 84% in older patients. In Texas alone, it was 85% of all patients died after more than 96 hours on a ventilator. It was known early on that 78% of hospitalized COVID patients presented with vitamin D deficiency. It was also known that a mortality rate of near zero could be achieved at certain levels of vitamin D. Instead, in the name of profits and control, more than 800,000 Americans died in hospitals due to the restriction of fluids, nutrition, antibiotics, effective antivirals, anti-inflammatories, and therapeutic doses of anticoagulants, and the use of remdesivir and ventilators. This is mass murder. So let's recap. The PCR test never worked. Still, to this day, every patient is tested for COVID upon entrance to a hospital or emergency room, whether they show symptoms or not. Thanks to the faulty PCR test, many patients are deemed to be COVID positive. Thus, hospitals can administer a deadly protocol, which is financially lucrative to them. The number of so-called cases and so-called deaths appear to rise. This empowers the elite to impose a fear matrix on a compliant population. Lockdown, lockdowns devastate the third world. The elites initiate the largest upward transfer of wealth in history. At least half the world is willingly surrenders its autonomy and lines up for an experimental injection while Fauci, so supposedly America's doctor wins awards from the ACLU and gets a cool million dollars from Israel for, quote, defending science, close quote. Reminder, it was never about a virus. When we come back, I will talk about death by medicine in a more general sense. All right, we're coming back here, and I'm going to assume that some of you, after hearing that last podcast segment, are feeling justifiably enraged. And I hope that's the case, and I hope it motivates you to do more than whatever it is you've done, because obviously we need, we need drastic change. Now, a fair amount of you may be skeptical and doubting what I said. This can't be possible here in the home of the brave, and I invite you to look it up. Do your homework. Don't rely on corporate sources. Do your own research and check, fact check whatever I said in the first segment. And if you find anything that was incorrect, contact me. And maybe somewhere in the middle is a group of people who are kind of coming to terms with the reality that they have been told lethal lies for the past two years. But this is not indicative of how the medical industry handles its business. 
So to you, to all of you, I say this. If someone is killed in a terrorist attack, it's headline news. If another person dies at the hands of the police, it'll be the top story for weeks. But when was the last time you saw breaking news about medical error? It's at least the third lead, leading cause of death in the U.S., but it's so common that it rarely, if ever, warrants notice. Then, of course, there's the whole cover-up aspect of it all. We're never supposed to question the infallible men and women in white coats, right? Well, I'm going to tell you a little anecdote and lead into some very important context. Twelve years ago this month, I appeared on a panel here in New York City at something called the Left Forum. It used to be or may still be an annual, um, I guess, sort of left-wing think tank type of situation at which I appeared a handful of times. This particular time, the ostensible topic was animal rights, but the conversations covered far more ground than that. Seated to my left on the panel was none other than Gary Noll, a very, very well-known health advocate and um, political commentator, too. Back before the internet, I would listen to Gary Noll on WBAI radio here in New York City. His eclectic show's primary focus was on what might be termed holistic health, and, and Gary never stopped questioning mainstream and corporate medicine and science, and he regularly would remind listeners about something called iatrogenic medicine, which is the technical term for when somebody dies due to the actions of a medical professional. So that day on the panel, Gary loved my presentation, but he still tried to trip me up a little in front of the crowd during the Q&A. While talking about the environmental causes of cancer, he turned to me and asked if I, if I know what the top cause of death in the U.S. was. Without skipping a beat, I replied, iatrogenic harm. Gary's jaw hung open for a second before he recovered and continued his monologue. I felt pretty good at that moment, but I also never forgot the importance of the point. There's nothing more dangerous than doctors, hospitals, and the medical industry. Gary Knoll was one of the first public figures to sound the trumpets about iatrogenic deaths, but fortunately there are many others. For example, Michael J. Sachs and Stephen Landsman are authors of Closing Death's Door, Legal Innovations to End the Epidemic of Healthcare Harm. They explain, quote, the causes of harm vary widely slips of a scalpel, lapses like mixing up lab results, faulty decision-making, inadequate training, evasion of known safety practices, miscommunication, equipment failures, and many more. The ease with which medical errors can occur is striking. To perform a bronchoscopy, to remove a sunflower seed that went down a two-year-old's airway instead of his esophagus, a doctor in New Mexico inadvertently sedated the boy with an adult dose of morphine. This stopped him, this caused him to stop breathing and led to severe permanent brain damage. A lab in New York State mislabeled a tissue sample, causing a woman who did not have breast cancer to get a double mastectomy, while cancer kept growing inside the woman who had the disease. 
surgeons still sometimes get left and right confused, and it's not uncommon for patients to get the wrong medication or the wrong dose, as happened to the Boston Globe <clears throat> health reporter Betsy Lehman, who died from an overdose of chemotherapy drugs that were miscalculated. Close quote. Even the mainstream media will admit that medical errors is the third leading cause of death in the United States, with the general figure being agreed upon as 250,000 lives lost per year. But medical errors are only one component of the problem. Even when the correct treatment is given, it can cause countless injuries and deaths. And if you get any funny ideas about reporting these healthcare heroes, keep in mind that hospital medical records typically do not list incidents of doctor-induced harm or death. Death by Medicine is a 2001 report. So we're talking 21 years ago. This report is by Gary Null, Carolyn Dean, Martin Feldman, Deborah Razio, and Dorothy Smith. In this report, they explain, quote, as few as 5% and no more than 20% of iatrogenic acts are ever reported. This implies that if medical errors were completely and accurately reported, we would have an annual iatrogenic death toll much higher than 783,936, close quote. A more recent estimate, factoring in adverse drug reactions, medically acquired bed sores, death caused by surgery, and unnecessary procedures, is 999,936 Americans per year killed by doctors and other medical professionals. When they eventually factor in the iatrogenic deaths caused by deadly COVID protocols and vaccines, maybe then the public will finally catch on. Your doctor is the most dangerous person you know. Your doctor and the pharmaceutical insurance cartels behind him. Now, despite all I've said during this podcast, there is a clear and simple path out of all of this. Accept the truth stop complying, and spread the word. Join us. I will be back with my story of the week featuring the return of Uncle Butch right after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here with a few messages before we get back to the show. I'm asking you to become a paid subscriber to Post Woke. To do so, it's very simple. Just go to mickeyz.substack.com. The link is in the show notes. And there, for just $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day, you can support what I'm doing and get a steady flow of podcasts, articles, and other content, including perks that are available only to paid subscribers. So I thank you in advance for making that commitment. It really makes a difference. In addition, if you'll scroll through, scroll through the show notes, you'll see that I have a link in there for the project I do to help homeless women in New York City. Your support is most welcome. There's a link in there for a very cool post-woke podcast t-shirt to let people know what your favorite podcast is. And there's also a link in there for my NFT digital art photography. If you're interested in non-fungible tokens as a collectible, please click that link, check it out, and maybe maybe buy yourself a collectible work of art. 
So on that note, thank you again. And most importantly, please consider becoming a subscriber at mickeyz.substack.com. And now let's get back to the show. It's intermission. Rise and stretch time. Time to refresh yourself and visit our snack bar. Got a yen for hot popcorn? Your favorite soft drinks are sparkling cold. The juicy Frank sizzling hot. And we're back with Bernie Cullinan, a.k.a. Uncle Butch. Welcome back Thank to Post you, <laughs> Welcome back. And this is my fourth time. I feel like um, <laughs> it's it's sort of like hosts that have been on Saturday Night Live, and they come on and they there say, this is my fifth time. You know, yeah, no, like Tom Hanks or something. Time. You're very elite group of people that do that. Yeah. You know that or I'll have to start charging your rent to be. <laughs> yeah. Let me go back a little bit. Uh, when when I the first film that I remember seeing was uh, The Wizard of Oz, um, and for me it was a new film, but it wasn't new that it came out because came out in '39, and uh, you know I wasn't even born yet. But um, that was I, I was hooked on movies, and uh, my movie going experience was. Uh, going as often as I could. Uh, I didn't care if they were old movies or new movies. Uh, one reason is we didn't have a TV until I was 10 years old. Good so for you. <laughs> I was sort of in left field as far as seeing, as far as seeing uh, movies were concerned. I was happy to see any kind of movie. So let me let me let me set the stage really quickly just to explain to the listeners that what we're doing here is the quote unquote story of the week. And um, since this story involves both of us, but very much your interest and in, and and um, how you've influenced me, this is why you're talking about movies. So I just wanted to explain that, and please continue. So I don't get too far afield, you mean? <laughs> kind of. Yeah. <laughs> I was starting to go on. <laughs> okay. Um, I I had decided uh, that I needed to go to college. We I had just gotten married, and um, a couple of months before. And I started going to Hunter College, and I was uh, my my uh, uh, main idea was to get some credits in in accounting and uh, economics and some business courses. I had no intentions of taking um, the kind of courses that would be like electives. Uh, and once I found out, well, I had to take electives. I started looking for electives that I would enjoy. And of some of them um, I didn't know I was going to enjoy. Like I, I took uh, the uh, music course and I got actually a chance to see uh, Ishtak Perlman at Carnegie Hall. Uh, I took a, a, um, um, uh, another course in, uh, what is it, uh, Margaret Mead? Uh, um, anthropology? Anthropology, cultural anthropology. And I enjoyed that. And I also saw that they were offering a music course, I mean, a, a movie course. And I was always, always interested. So I grabbed that one right away. And I decided to take it on a Saturday because I knew that this way we could, I could see a movie on the same day we could also talk about the movie. And that was great. So yes. I'm not sure how many uh, Saturdays I went through before I decided, I, I said, well, I wonder if Michael would enjoy it. By the way, that's Mickey Z's real name, okay? Yeah, it's my Christian you, name. For you. Okay. Um, <laughs> so so but, you, asked, you asked my mom yes. and the professor who I remember was Annie, a woman, but I don't recall her he, name. And we got had, 
I she had no problems at all. She was yeah. very very helpful in that regard, and I knew you weren't going to be the type of of guy or kid that uh, made noise or disrupted the class or asked stupid questions and stuff like that. So I didn't worry about that I, end I, at I, all. I ask all the stupid questions now. I saved them up for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> but uh, I. I, you know, it was so fascinating taking that course um, that, you know, just getting into uh, the framing of a movie like when we watched, not necessarily Citizen Kane, I'll get to that, but Young Abe Lincoln, there was a part of Young Abe Lincoln where um, John Ford, who directed Young Abe Lincoln, he focused on the side of a barn and uh, there was a, an upper door, uh, the door to the upper level of the, of the barn. Maybe it was like a, a place where you'd dump the hay out or something. And uh, the professor pointed out that that was the framing, that the way uh, John Ford directed that was framing of, of uh, Lincoln at that time, you know, calling to mind already at that early age, young Abe Lincoln. It, this was when he was in his early thirties, uh, late twenties, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, um, the idea of framing Abe Lincoln, um, it sort of caught it calling to mind the later idea that he would be president and he would be framed in many photographs yes. and, and pictures and things like that. And I had never thought of, of looking at pictures, movies that way. So I was really intrigued. And naturally, Citizen Kane was remarkable. You know, it's still listed as the best movie ever. Uh, I don't yeah, know. Let, let, me, let me cut in. That's where the first, I don't know how many weeks into the semester it was. I'm going to assume a film of the stature of Citizen Kane was relatively early, but that I strongly remember that was the first class that I was able to sit in. So <clears throat> my introduction to a college film course was sitting in a classroom full of adults with a film professor talking about this um, obscure little film by the name of Citizen Kane, which um, I was, I'm assuming I, I was around 11 years old, maximum 12. So 11 or 12 year old watching Citizen Kane for the first time on a reasonably big screen in a classroom with a bunch of film nerds and this woman who, this was her career, this is what she knew. And the way she explained it was life-changing. Uh, yes, and I wanted to point out one thing before we focus on that is, and Citizen Kane was actually written uh, by two people. One naturally you know is Orson Welles, and he was writing a, about a character called, uh, you know, naturally, uh, uh, you know, for some reason I can't remember his first William, William Randolph Hearst? We, well, no, the character he played. Oh, in Charles the, Foster Kane. Charles Foster Kane. And the, the writer, the other writer who helped him write Citizen Kane was Herman Mankiewicz. Yes. He was the older brother. He was 12 years older than Joseph Mankiewicz, who, was, uh, who would become renowned in his own right uh, because he was responsible for a number of movies of his own that he, mm -hmm. he did. Now, Herman Mankiewicz had a big problem. He was uh, an alcoholic 
and uh, he w was causing a lot of trouble. He was uh, he was off to a good start in the twenties, but by the mid thirties, um, the, the start of the thirties, he he went astray. the The only thing in the thirties that I thought you would appreciate was he was the producer for three movies that I think you would find interesting was Duck Soup, <laughs> Monkey Business, and Horse Horse Feathers. Yeah, yeah, which, yeah. which were naturally, you know, they were they were they were the uh, uh, the Marx Brothers. Uh, it's my introduction to Marxism, right? There. Yes, and yeah. and uh, uh, he just floated around, but he did himself in by constantly drinking. So when he was picked by Orson Welles to help him write the, the screenplay for Citizen Kane, uh, Orson Welles. Um, got a, a, somebody else that was with him on the Mercury Theater, John Houseman, who later became um, he was he was he had a TV show for of his own um, where they he was teaching law, you know. But Houseman was very very uh, good at that, and and Watson uh, uh, Wells told Houseman to make sure you watch. Mankiewicz and make sure he isn't drinking and make sure that he's paying attention. And between Mankiewicz and Wells, he they created uh, a, a, a just a great screenplay and everything that went with it. And one thing I want to mention is Wells at the time uh, was he was born in 1915, and we're talking about 1941. Yeah. So he was only 26 years old. Yeah. No, I think that alone is amazing. Absolutely. I, it's, I mean, you could argue that he he started at the top and worked his way down from there. But that's a that's a very complicated story. But it's what he was able to do in his first film is perhaps unparalleled. And I can remember sitting in that class where let me let me just give for context. I was a movie fan by then. I was a Marx Brothers fan by then. Um, I lived in the same building as you for a while, so you were always a movie buff. My mom, your older sister, was a movie buff. My dad had his share of movies, particularly war movies. So I wasn't a complete newcomer to film. But two important things to point out is I had never seen Citizen Kane, and I had never witnessed somebody stopping the film, show, going back and explaining camera angles, lighting, the use of montage in, in this way. And it was, it was absolutely revelatory to me to, to understand film as an art form. Like prior to that film, which was to me a form of entertainment, and this professor with the opportunity you gave me being in the class was it, it was life-changing in the sense that I became a lifelong movie fan but I also watch movies differently to this day yeah now I I'd like to have you tell me in the audience um, what what happened after that after you discovered all the nuances of watching movies a different way and paying attention to the little things and the, the 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 kind of things that Citizen Kane was famous for, like deep focus and things like that, uh, you started writing at some point um, a a column in a local little newspaper in Elmhurst, East Elmhurst. It was it was based in a story. It was called the Western Queen's Gazette, 
And uh, they were, um, I guess I sent them samples. This is pre-internet days, so you would either physically drop them off or print out, like on, a, on an electric typewriter, print out samples and put them in an envelope with a stamp and walk to a mailbox and send it in. It's kind of sounds uh, obscene now, but um, they gave me the green light to have a column called Mr. Movie. And what I did every week in the Gazette and had quite a following. People would talk to me on the street about it. I would get, I had a PO box and people would mail me letters. Um, but what I did was a combination of reviewing films that I would see because having caught the bug after this class that you took me to, I went to the movies all the time. But then I would also go back to classic films and discuss scenes and ask people about them. I remember distinctly one column. I talked about the movie from the mid thirties with Jimmy Cagney called angels with dirty faces, where he plays um, a gangster that these punk kids idolize and, and the priest, um, Pat O'Brien, when, when Jimmy Cagney is ultimately scared, um, sent to the electric chair, the priest says to him, if you would go out as a coward, th then these kids wouldn't idolize you anymore. And he says, no way, I'll never do that. And then he does go out as a coward, but it's never clearly d uh, discerned as did he do the right thing for the kids or did he just go out like a coward? And I remember writing columns like that, where it was like, where I was looking at movies with a completely different eye ever since I was 11 or 12 in that class. And it was, um, it, there was, it, there's a direct thread there in the sense that I couldn't, I always wanted to be a writer, but I couldn't ever have imagined being a movie writer if I hadn't been in those Hunter College classes with you. By the way, one thing I should mention also is that um, the uh, number of movies that uh, the director, John Ford, uh, the director of Young Abe Lincoln, he he directed a total of 146 movies, but a lot of them were silent movies that he started directing uh, in the early teens, like the, well, not early, but mid-teens, 1915, 1916. He didn't direct his first sound movie until the late 20s, because it didn't come out until then. And uh, he's the only director, as far as I know, somebody out there can correct me if I'm wrong, but he's the only director to win four Best Director Oscars. Four. Oh, I did not know that. The Informer with uh, Victor McLaughlin, uh, and the second one was The Grapes of Wrath. Uh, the third was How Green Was My Valley. And, and those were actually won in a period of seven years. He won three Best Director Oscars in a period of seven years. Wow. And then 11 years later, naturally, they gave him the Best Director Award for The Quiet Man, the one where John Wayne goes back to Ireland. I mentioned yeah. that in a previous episode about St. Patrick's. Well, I will tell you that while you were talking, I quickly looked it up and you it, he is number one with four um, direct, Best Director Oscars. So as we move towards wrapping up here, what I would love for you to do for the audience is just pick i didn't i didn't tell you this in advance so this is going to be spontaneous just pick one movie anywhere from the silent movies to something that came out last week that you would recommend to the audience that that they should check out um this is a movie it, it's not even one that we talked about it's completely uh different um it's a movie with Cary Grant, 
and Catherine Hepburn, late 30s. It's a comedy, and it's a brilliant comedy, and everybody will enjoy it. It's called Bringing Up Baby, okay? And it it's really not about a human baby. I'll give you that. But it, it is one of the one of the funniest movies I've ever seen, really. And I think everyone will enjoy it. I don't know where it is in terms of um, how to how to get a hold of it. Um, if it's cheap enough on Amazon, you could buy it because I guarantee you'll want to play it again and again. It's a great movie. So I, I'm I'm writing this down now to notes to myself that to the listeners I will put in the show notes when this episode goes live some link to bring up baby if it's available streaming I'll put that link in there if it's not I will try and find relevant clips on YouTube to share but I second your um, your endorsement entirely I that's a movie I don't know if I've watched it with you but I distinctly remember watching it with my mom and you just multiple times you you laugh as much the second third fourth fifth time so i agree with you <clears throat> it's a, it's a multiple viewing type of film so um i just want to say thank you not just for telling the story but all these years later thank you for um bringing me to the class and introducing me to the art of film because um i feel like i wish every child particularly today in the marvel comics world of movies i wish every young person could be introduced to the nuance of filmmaking to be able to watch movies with that type of discerning eye because it was a gift for me at that age that it's a gift that keeps on giving. I, I, I watch movies all the time and I feel like I learned how to better appreciate them from those classes that I sat in. So thank well, you for that. I appreciate your thanks. And uh, I think loving movies will always be with me. Oh, I'm sure of that. Yeah. It's, it's one of the things I identify with you. And and when I mentioned to you, hey, let's do a, another story together, because we did the one a few uh, couple months ago about you starting a, a impromptu Little League. The first thing you said is, how about the movie classes? And I was like, perfect. That's exactly because it's one of the things that I associate with you. So thank you for, for joining me again on Postwoke and sharing the story. And I look forward to having you back on soon. Oh, will do. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Uh, Bye-bye. There's delicious coffee, freshly brewed, and all kinds of ice cream and candy to tempt you. Showtime will be announced loud and clear to get you back to your car in time. So stretch your legs. Come to the snack bar now.